Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Greetings, patrons. We have a special episode of Talking in the Library for you today. I have passed the mic over to Dr. Deirdre Cooper-Owens, our director of the program of African-American history here at the Library Company, who will be speaking with Dr. Kelly Carter-Jackson about her powerful new book, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Force and Freedom provides the first historical analysis exclusively focused on the tactical use of violence among antebellum black activists. Carter Jackson argues that through tactical violence, these black abolitionist leaders accomplished what white nonviolent abolitionists could not, creating the very conditions that necessitated the Civil War. Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson is the NAFL Assistant Professor of the Humanities in the Department of Africana Studies at Wesley College. Her research focuses on slavery and the abolitionists, violence as a political discourse, historical film, and black women's history. Welcome, Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson, author of The Tour de Force, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. So I want to get into this because I've been following your career and your work for some time, and I'm really excited about the way you are making such an important and critical intervention in abolitionist studies, in the study of freedom fighting for early African Americans. And so first, can you tell us how you came to this project? Yeah, sure. Actually, an undergrad. So I uh, had to do a research paper my senior year. And I'll never forget the grad student was talking about John Brown and John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. And he said, John Brown was the coolest white man that ever lived. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. Who is this man? (laughs) So I started writing this paper on him and it got me thinking about violence. It got me thinking about who would want to commit this kind of act and why and how you get people to join the cause. And so what started out as what I thought was a lot back then, 20 pages in undergrad, was really just sort of the start of me thinking about these ideas that once I got to graduate school, they became fully fleshed out. But it started, yeah, it started my senior year at Howard University. Right. So this is the thing. I have known Dr. Carter Jackson for a few years and Writing a book about violence and the promotion (laughs) of carrying the gun is so outside of who she is as a person. She's probably one of the only people I know who smiles all the time. And yet here's a really serious and heavy book Mm -hmm. about the politics of racial violence. Mm -hmm. And in the possession of the Library Company of Philadelphia, we have David Walker's Appeal. And so I'd like for you to lay out for our listeners, you know, tell us about David Walker. Who was he? Tell us about this appeal that he writes to the colored citizens of the world and what that what that means and and where he shows up in Force and Freedom. Sure. David Walker's in the first chapter. He has to be because Mm -hmm. he really does set the, the precedent for how we think about radical abolitionism, how we think about radical self-defense. He's a man that is extremely well-learned. His pamphlet gets circulated 
all up and down the East Coast. He actually used black sailors to help circulate his pamphlet. He would he worked in a tailor shop, so he would sew in his pamphlet into the sailors' clothing, and that's how they were able to smuggle it all throughout the country. But it's quite a remarkable pamphlet in that it's not that long. It's actually kind of thin, maybe about 30 or so pages. And it's it's fairly easy to read, but when you're reading it, it's so powerful. The words really pop off the page. And you'll notice that if you're reading like an original copy of David Walker's Appeal, you'll notice that he's very forceful in his writing. Dr. Tara Bynum, who is a fellow at the library company, has done a really rich examination of the original David Walker pamphlet. In looking at the pamphlet, she talks about the tedious nature and the work that goes into printing such a radical piece of literature. She talks about the use of exclamation points and how laborious that is in using not just one, but several all in a sentence to pull the reader's attention in and to let him know that he's being emphatic about the point that he's making. So this is not a short, quick story that you could read and think of it as a Sunday paper issue. This really is a manifesto and black people who are reading it and learning about it are being motivated to think about their freedom in different ways but to think about how they might obtain freedom through force i think is what's most important about this pamphlet right the library company did an exhibition during the fall that featured David Walker's appeal. You can also see this document in really clear form on the Library Company of Philadelphia's website. You see what you're saying at the end of the first paragraph. It ends with, in this Republican land of liberty, and there are about five or six exclamation points. Him having to go, as you referenced Dr. Bynum's work, to typesetters to get each one to print that exclamation point. And so it's tedious, it's laborious. Because he is wanting to emphasize that this is a land of liberty meant for it's African It's very intentional. People. Yes. Very intentional. Yeah. You know, he knows exactly what he wants to say. And every single sentence packs a punch mm-hmm. in it that makes it really exciting to read, especially given the fact that this is published in 1829. Wow. So this is not something that you would be reading, you know, in the radical 1960s. This is the radical 1820s, right? Right. And, and hearing a black man, no less, write in this way is something that I think is the perfect place to start start my book with because what I'm doing is taking two radical publications. I would say the most radical of all of the 19th century is David Walker's Appeal and Henry Highland Garnett's Address to the Slaves. And really using these as bookmarks to talk about how Black abolitionists are envisioning a radical freedom and how they see violence coming into play in terms of the overthrow of slavery. Right. And David Walker and Henry Highland Garnett, they were both born enslaved, am I correct? Yes. So Henry Highland Garnett is from Maryland. He is a fugitive slave. He runs away with his family. When he's 12 years old, he's arming himself with a knife. His father and his mother are constantly telling him to be on the lookout for slave catchers. When he's about 19 years old, he's attending an interracial school in New Hampshire. And a mob of white citizens attack the school, start shooting at the school. He picks up a shotgun in self-defense, starts shooting back at the mob to protect the other school children from being killed. So all throughout his youth, he has had to take a very radical stance in terms of self-defense or what I like to call protective violence. So that by the time he writes this also radical piece of the 19th century, he's speaking from experience. He knows what it means to have to arm yourself. He also knows what it means to face the possibility of being sent back into slavery. And so he's willing to protect that even at the risk of his own life. 
Yeah, I remember in uh, learning about these men, I know that David Walker was born in North Carolina and, and moves to uh, Massachusetts and begins his career as an abolitionist, but also training all kinds of folk, especially Mariah Stewart. Yes, and then yes. thinking about- Mariah Stewart's his right, protege. Oh yeah. my goodness. And thinking about Henry Highland Garnett. And in many ways, as you come to the intersection of early Revolutionary War era history and early abolitionist history, that centers African-Americans, you see that they're relying on the same kind of constitutional amendment yeah. right, to protect themselves, that it is protective violence, as you say, so often enforcing freedom. And that brings me to another person that people might not have heard so much about, Lewis Hayden. Oh, I love Lewis Hayden. Yeah, what, what's so interesting? What's so lovable <laughs> about Hayden Lewis Hayden? Lewis Hayden is, I like to tell people he's like my historical boyfriend. Like, <laughs> I, I just love... Lewis Hayden so much and I think you know he really picks up the mantle for David Walker left off and that he also comes to Boston he's a fugitive slave as well he comes from Kentucky and then moves from Kentucky to Ohio Ohio to Michigan finally settles in Boston also opens up a clothing shop just like David Walker mm-hmm. does and then becomes very active on the Underground Railroad within a matter of months he's nominated to be the president of their vigilant society people can trust him to the point of death and every time a fugitive comes to the city of Boston he either helps them get established in the city or helps them get further north to Canada or to wherever else they're trying to go people might be familiar with William and Ellen Craft yes. they have their own narrative called A Thousand Miles to Freedom they make their first pit stop is like in Hayden's home and Lewis Hayden actually officiates their wedding in their home Hayden is someone who I think does not get the attention of someone like a Frederick Douglass but he's so important when it comes to radical abolitionism and the use of force his home they said was like a fort so he always had kegs of gunpowder he always had guns all around him he had watchmen on each corner of his block looking out for slave catchers So he really has this radical stance. And his wife does as well. I think a lot of times we discount the wives because we don't see them as playing an active role. But she's there making sure that fugitives get everything that they need, food, clothing, shelter. And she leads a remarkable life as well. Together, they do a lot of great things for the city of Boston. And what is her name? So he actually has two wives. His first wife is Eliza Harvey that he marries in slavery, albeit not legally because slaves are not legally allowed to marry. But his first wife and son is actually sold away from him. And that really prompts him to run. And when he does, he remarries to a woman named Harriet Bell Hayden. And they live out the rest of their married days together. But he does have two wives and sort of two families. And he also talks about this in his memoir that he has a son that died in freedom and he has a son that was separated from him in slavery. And he talks about how the greatest loss for him was his son in slavery because he never got to grieve him or say goodbye and how death was so finite in freedom but in slavery you never know what happens to your children when they're sold away from you and he grieved the loss of his son in slavery the rest of his life yeah I think that's the beauty about your book I mean these are stories of people who are engaged in harrowing experiences and often experiences that us in the 21st century couldn't imagine ourselves kind of grappling with and having to live through 
And yet you tell it in such a compelling way. I think you bring to the page a three-dimensionality of these historical actors. And so, you know, beyond being just really smart scholarship, I think what what would be really interesting for the reader is to be able to to get a sense of these people's lives through their own stories, right? Mm -hmm. That you are also doing something that uh, often scholars of slavery don't have access to. And that's memoirs in their writings because these (laughs) people, although born enslaved, become literate. And so they are leaving a written record, which is so important. But there's something that you said when you spoke about the enslaved married couple, Ellen and William Craft. Mm -hmm. And Ellen was white appearing Mm -hmm. and she appeared as a white man, you know, a disabled white man. Yeah, disguises herself. And her husband is kind of her manservant and Mm -hmm. they escaped to freedom from Georgia to the north. You also talk about Lewis Hayden and his wife. I want to talk about gender a little bit because in this story of abolitionism, outside of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, (laughs) we really don't know other women. Yeah. And so where does gender and the treatment of women come Mm. in? Who is a woman character that we Mm -hmm. need to know about that we may not know a lot about? Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. It's a question I get a lot. When I wrote this book, I didn't want to just have a chapter on the women or a paragraph on the women. I wanted to really sort of weave their stories in so that you get a feeling that they are a part of the narrative and not separate from that or not a footnote to that. But I found that it's really hard to sort of get these stories and get beyond the wife character and really get deep into who these women are and how they're contributing in significant ways. So right now I'm actually writing an article that's just on women and it's a lot easier to do because I can take some of these stories and add other stories of women that are doing remarkable things. I ran across a story that was like, oh, I wish I could have put this Mm -hmm. in the book. It's so remarkable in that it's two women who are running away and they get captured by slave catchers and they get presented before the court and a mob of abolitionists rescues them and opens up the door to get them to to run away and to to run through safety on the underground railroad and as the two women are trying to get away there is a white man who tries to grab one of the fugitive women and she has no name but the author says this big black woman who worked as a domestic worker took the white man by his shoulders, grabbed him in like a bear hug and kept him from getting a hold of this enslaved woman and and keeping her from running away. And I was like, who is this woman? Mm-hmm. Like, And you know, a lot of these women, unfortunately, don't always have names attached to them or don't always have, you know, their name in shining lights, but they do remarkable things. And they're heroes in that, you know, they're literally putting their bodies on the line. But someone I think that we do know a lot about and I talk about in the book is Mary Ellen Pleasant. So Mary Ellen Pleasant is an abolitionist. She's an entrepreneur. She's huge in California history. She is one of like the founding members of the Bank of California. Mm-hmm. She's said to be one of the first black women millionaires. It's a little hard to pinpoint how much money she actually made, but she was certainly not poor, mm-hmm. uh, put it that way. She becomes one of the single greatest benefactors to John Brown and John Brown's writing on Harper's wow. Ferry. She donates over $30,000 of her own money to the cause, which is the equivalency of about $800,000 today. That's a oh lot. In the 19th a century. A lot of money in the 19th century, in 1859. I believe she writes the check 
check in 1858. And no one really knows who she is. Obviously, she had to operate in secrecy. But, you know, to to think of John Brown's raid as being made possible because of the donation of an obscure Black woman Mm -hmm. who lives in California, no less, to me, it's just a fascinating story. So there is a, a biography about her life. I talk about her in my book as well. But I want to let all my readers know that women play a pivotal role when it comes to the abolitionist movement, that women are just as susceptible to violence as men are, and that women have just as much a grievance to use violence to retaliate, even more so in many cases than their male counterparts. Wow. You know what? Something you said made me think about the ways that In history, often we highlight the kind of great men or great women of history, and we forget their communities that supported these people. Mm -hmm. So I know I learned about Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison. Mm -hmm. And then later, when I went to grad school, uh, particularly at Clark Atlanta University, when I was getting my master's degree, we learned that it was the black community in the North that supported William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator, that he could not have published it. He's nothing without the black community. (laughs) Without these black financial subscribers. And so in reading about Mary Ellen Pleasant and the fact that she was this philanthropist Mm -hmm. who took $30,000 out of her own pot yeah. to to finance this, I mean, unfortunately failed raid, yeah. right? But this really kind of fleshy, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, when you think about John Brown, he doesn't do anything quietly. <laughs> you know, he is not subdued. He's not writing <laughs> no. pamphlets, right? No. <laughs> he, he is super flashy, and yet it is underscored by the, the benefit, you know, the financial benefit yeah. of this black woman. And there are other yeah. black women who supported. I mean, yeah. Harriet Tubman was like, That's right. I'll join your cause. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, and I think that, you know, someone like Frederick Douglass, when it comes to John Brown, he's like, hey, this is kind of a suicide mission, but here's some money. You know, like he, mm-hmm. he supports it in theory, but he doesn't think right. in practice it's, it's possible. Harriet Tubman says... I'm on board. I'll help you out. You know, I think it's fortunate that she doesn't because (laughs) some scholars say that she falls ill during the raid because John Brown also abruptly changes the date of the raid. It caused some confusion. So I think in the end, it was a good thing that Harry Tubman was not there. But the fact that she was on board, I think, speaks volumes. Even Frederick Douglass's wife, when Frederick Douglass is not there, Anna Douglass is taking John Brown in. He's staying at their home for weeks. She's feeding him. She's washing his clothes. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that they probably had long conversations about his plans, his ideas, about Douglass's away. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are a lot of women that support his cause in ways that I think are very significant, but also very subtle, too. And I I didn't want to discount any of that. Not everybody can give $30,000, but I think there is something also very valuable in being that person that provides the shelter or provides the meal Mm -hmm. or that is on the front lines doing that kind of work. Even when we look at Harriet Tubman's life, she was never above serving soldiers meals you know she was never like do you know who i am you know she could have done that she could have easily pulled rank but she preferred to be a servant and to have sort of a servant's heart when it came to the abolitionist movement let me ask you a question that and this is kind of changing the direction of our conversation a little bit but i mean this is the undercurrent of your book it's about (laughs) essentially violence and about kind of the scary thing like black people being (laughs) violent you know for their freedom which by the late 1950s, 1960s, when you have a kind of multi 
cultural integrated civil rights movement mm-hmm. with Dr. King as the leader and the figurehead, it is all about nonviolence and yeah. pacifism. And you are supposed to participate in nonviolent acts yeah. to protest the country's elevation of white supremacy and anti-blackness and all mm-hmm. of these things that were going on, right? Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. And so Malcolm X was often seen as the foil, which is really interesting yeah. because the NOI, <laughs> the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X weren't really out here holding guns or knives or anything, yeah. right? No, no. Um, and so even the picture becomes kind of propaganda with with Malcolm X in the window. Yeah. So even the foil isn't as violent as people think, right? No. There's no real promotion of violence, just self-defense. Yes. But in the 19th century, it is very different. Oh, there yeah. is not this kind of advocacy of pacifism. So how do we speak about violence? Mm-hmm. How do you discuss it? Mm-hmm. But also, how do you describe to, to readers who haven't read Force and Freedom yet how we move from protective violence, Yeah, right? Self-defense. And it is really normal for people to carry knives and, and guns <laughs> yeah, to, pistols. Right, to kind of silent protests that happened towards the end of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. One of the things that students say to me all the time is like, oh, I get your book. It's just like Malcolm X and Martin Luther <laughs> King. And I'm like, yes, but a hundred years earlier, these things are happening. These conversations, these debates are taking place so much earlier. And I think one of the things that we don't seem to magnify in our conversations is that when we think about slavery, slavery is created through violence. It's sustained through violence and it's ultimately overthrown through violence. When we're talking about slavery, we're really talking about an institution of violence all throughout. And even when we talk about the long freedom struggle and the civil rights movement, we like to talk about nonviolence, but really we're talking about violence. We're talking about four little girls dead in a church. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Emmett Till's body. We're talking about assassinations of Meg Revers in his driveway. We're talking about the assassination of King and Malcolm X. Everything that Black people are doing in the 20th century is really a response to violence that's being played out against them. I think it's easier to talk about nonviolence as this weapon. It's much more difficult to talk about the violence that they're responding to. Mm -hmm. So when you look in the 19th century, you know, I think we can look back and say, slavery is wrong. Of course, slavery is evil. This is bad. But it would make sense that you would need violence to combat a violent institution. Mm -hmm. When Black abolitionists talk about taking up arms, talking about defending themselves, For me, it's much more than self-defense. I think that when we think about self-defense, we think of someone chasing us maybe and saying stop or I'll shoot, something like that. But when I talk about protective violence, I mean it from the collective standpoint. So these are communities, free black communities or fugitive black communities that are coming together and saying, not on my watch. Mm -hmm. And they are attacking slave catchers. They are killing slave owners in the case of the Christiana resistance. They are fighting back with every single thing that they have. And you have to remember, they were not considered citizens, right? Black people were not considered citizens. Black people were not considered to have rights. They couldn't serve on a jury. They couldn't testify. They couldn't be a witness. You couldn't vote in a lot of instances. So I mean, you don't have traditional channels to produce change, like the ballot, for instance, Mm -hmm. what other weapon do you have? So I talk about how um, violence becomes this political language. Violence becomes a weapon. It becomes a way of communicating your humanity Mm -hmm. when you don't have traditional channels available to you. 
Yeah, it is interesting, I think, to see the transformation and also the way that this story about the politics of violence and Black abolitionism in the 19th century, for some reason, was just muted. Um, And I don't think it's because historians didn't want people to know, but it just seemed as if the message of the modern civil rights movement kind of took precedence. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. we forgot that it was really the polar opposite in many ways of what these original freedom fighters had advocated, you know, in the name of Mm self-defense. I am thinking about Douglas. Yes. And most people would liken him, I think, now I could be wrong, (laughs) to a king character, Mm. a kind of king-like character. Mm. I think particularly after his ideological split with William Lloyd Garrison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Garrison seems, you know, more fiery than Frederick Douglass. Was Frederick Douglass an advocate of violence? Yes and no. So initially, no. Initially, when he is sort of a student of Garrison, he takes on all of Garrison's principles and pacifism is a part of that. So he believes in kind of turning the other cheek, not returning violence for violence. But a lot of that changes. And the real linchpin, I would say, is the fugitive slave law. I say in the book that if nonviolence or moral suasion is the house that Garrison built, Mm -hmm. black people are merely renters, right? They don't really Mm -hmm. own these ideas, especially in the face of a slave catcher or in the face of a mob. And this happens with Douglas as well. It's in 1843. He's giving a a speech and a mob tries to attack him and he starts swinging, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and he just... He does not turn the other cheek. And he says he didn't feel bad about that because he was trying to protect himself and he was trying to protect his friend. But when the fugitive slave law gets issued, it makes everyone vulnerable. And not just people that actually ran away and escaped from slavery, but people that are free could be kidnapped, right? And, you know, we think of Solomon Northup in 12 Years a Slave. Like, his story is exceptional, not because it was kidnapped, but because he was able to get back to freedom. That's the real exception. But I think it's remarkable that Douglas has this about face in the face of the fugitive slave law. And he really starts to take up arms. He starts to talk about how slavery will only be over come with violence Mm -hmm. sojourner truth is like what do you mean douglas (laughs) is god dead Mm -hmm. and he's like no god's not dead but then he talks about how sojourner truth also has her own about face moment Mm -hmm. particularly when the civil war comes about frederick douglas's sons fight in the civil war he helps recruit for the civil war he changes a lot of his ideas he was also anti-immigration he didn't believe in packing up and leaving and going to canada or going you know to haiti and on the brink of the civil war he's like maybe we should go to haiti right like Mm -hmm. he's he's rethinking everything because he had been at this abolitionist movement thing for maybe 20 something years and all he has seen is the expansion of slavery the slave power is increasing black people are getting fewer and fewer rights the dred scott decision by the supreme court confirmed that you have no rights which we're bound to respect And so for Douglas, right before Lincoln's election, he basically says, look, you're either going to give us the ballot or it's the bullet. He gives the Malcolm X speech of the ballot or the bullet a hundred years earlier, saying, like, we've had enough of this and we're sick of it. And that's a quote. We've had enough and we are sick of it. And so Douglas definitely evolves and changes. And by the time of the Civil War, 
he's he's ready guns blazing that's right it is yeah it is just interesting i think for me being a scholar of the 19th century i'm always you know telling my students telling audiences there's really nothing that new under the sun right because these folk in the 19th century have kind of been there done that yeah and they've left blueprints for us all i want to ask you dr carter jackson what's next for you are you oh. going to do a continuation of this topic mm. or are you doing about face kind yeah, of style? I am. <laughs> well, in some ways, I think force and freedom is always going to be my first love. I'm always going to talk about this topic. I don't think this topic will ever get old. And as we look at the world around us, I think this topic becomes even more relevant, unfortunately. My next short term project is like I said, writing this article about black women, it's called Dare You Meet a Woman. And it's all about black women and violence and resistance and protective violence. That's in the short term. In the long term, I'm doing a completely different <laughs> mm-hmm. route. And I'm actually looking in the 20th century and I'm looking at the Titanic and race. Ooh. So I found out not too long ago, maybe a few years ago, that there was a black passenger on the Titanic, a Haitian man named Joseph Philippe Lemercier LaRouche. And, and he winds up dying as the Titanic sinks. He goes down with the ship. But the story is so much more than that. I think we have this obsession with the Titanic that, to me, is mind-boggling. And mm-hmm. so for a ship that was only in service for five days, you right. know? Right. So I really want to talk about this gap that I see, which is how we have equated wealth and whiteness with the ship and and why we're so obsessed with this tragedy that happens in 1912 and how does someone like Joseph LaRouche fit into that and how does he complicate our understanding of race and travel and mobility in the early 20th century? And in many ways, it does mirror race, travel, mobility, ultimately <laughs> yeah. freedom. Yeah, with, yeah. With force and freedom. For sure, for sure. Actually, yeah, you can make some parallels. <laughs> yeah, I think, for sure. <laughs> yeah. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. For coming and sharing your expertise, your knowledge. I would encourage every listener of this podcast to go out and purchase Force and Freedom, Black <laughs> Abolitionist and the Politics of Violence, Kelly Carter Jackson. I am Deirdre Cooper Owens, Director of the Program in African American History here at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Thank you. Thank you.